with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning, I'm your host, Rez Krebs, and today we've got the Friday political panel. Eric Allen, Trudy Martin, sorry, Trudy Klassen, Peter Ewart, and Herb Martin. Uh, let's start talking about this big Premier's meeting on health care that's happening today. There's been a lot of posturing. I think people have clearly noticed that. I, I heard, actually, I didn't hear this on the radio, but I heard someone report on it. The Premiers of Canada have been putting out radio advertising to talk about how, you know, they're sticking up for Canadians in this fight against Ottawa, which I found very interesting. I think it's the first time that the, you know, quote, Council of the Federation has actually put advertising out on the air supporting their position here. Um, so the latest is uh, 46.2 billion in new money. Amazingly, the conservative uh, leader, Pierre Poilievre, there is saying that he would actually increase the amount of money that they would be spending towards health care. Um, it's, it seems crazy to me that it's taken this long for them to reach a deal. Uh, and, and one of the issues I think is that the way I'm reading it, the, the federal government is actually trying to enforce at least parts of the Canada Health Act, frankly. Um, and the premiers want no more quote interference from Ottawa, even though this is, you know, a, a federal uh, concern. Eric, what do you think is going to happen here? Are they going to come out with a deal? Or are we going to get some new money? And if we get new money, is it actually going to fix things? Uh, well, we'll get the money. We won't get as much as they want, but uh, they never do. They always ask for more and expect less. That's a normal political maneuver. But uh, I'll try to look into some of this stuff and, and get a better sense of what's going on. And it's a dog's breakfast. It's the health care in, in Canada is just almost incomprehensible if you try to understand it between the provinces of different needs and wants and the territories and the funding and the rest of it. So Newfoundland is, uh, I think it was Newfoundland or one of the eastern provinces anyway, they're prepared to, to accept this as is because they need the money. Yeah. And they need the money because you got lots of seniors and very few young people. Now just think of that statement for a minute. That means the back is against the wall of the province is going downhill. You know, so, and we're not too far behind them in the other provinces. There's a lot of seniors in this country now, and if that's the criteria for staying alive, we're in trouble. Because if it's cost this much now, what's it going to cost 10 years from now? So, throwing money at it's one thing, solving some problems and doing some things differently. All that's, of these. That's something else. Yeah, all these social programs are kind of built on a pyramid scheme, right? And if the bottom of the pyramid starts to shrink, we're in trouble. Uh, True, do you think this money is actually going to go towards improving our situation here? I mean, there's a lot of other issues that don't require money to solve, like the actual organization of how we deliver health care, right? You're baiting me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, You know, uh, an argument can be made that, uh, that Ottawa needs to cough up more money. Absolutely. However, I have real concerns that we we really need to fix how our healthcare modeling model is working. I, I don't think it was it was designed in the what fifties. The Diefenbaker, yeah, fifties. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's time for a bit of an overhaul. And this whole idea, and I, and I'm I was glad to see that the prime minister actually acknowledged that very very gently that maybe perhaps you know things aren't working as well as we hope. Um, I mean, in Canada, if you're dying. You get instant medical care. It's really awesome. But if you are anything short of dying, 
uh, you are facing a long wait. And um, we need to cha- we need to change the models, and I think that would work best if each province was given the freedom to do that. Um, I am totally in favor of uh, single payer, which uh, would be our, our governments. Um, but I think we need to explore different ways of of, uh, of providing the services of healthcare because what we have is not working. No one can tell us that it's working. And like um, Eric was saying, it's just going to get worse. We are at the beginning of the boomers aging, and uh, I mean, we can offer aid. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where we're at. And we, if we don't have this conversation now, we're, we're, we're in serious trouble. And because, I mean, we might have a 10 year window to, to begin to deal with it. And that's probably about how long it would take to actually put in some, um, substantial reforms, uh, which would give us the time. But yeah, that's, that's, I think where we're at. Peter, you got a doom and gloom story. You got a magic bullet for us here. Uh, well, you know, when you look back at the, the current crisis in healthcare, you know, we can trace it back to, like, in terms of funding cutbacks to the 1990s with the uh, federal government, uh, the Kretchen-Martin uh, government, cutting the tra- health transfer payments to the province, to the provinces. And, uh, you know, since then, you, you've had this finger-pointing going back and forth, right, where the provinces themselves are, are doing cutbacks. And uh, anyway, there's all kinds of shenanigans going on uh, in, in, in terms of uh, uh, how this is de- delivered. I think one of the things that strikes me about this whole thing is that you have uh, the politicians and the top-level bureaucrats making all these decisions about what's taking place, whereas uh, when you look at the uh, who are the real workers in the system and all this, it's, a, it's the healthcare workers and staff and medical staff who uh, have a huge amount of experience with these kinds of things, but who get left out in the cold too often, right? Like, for example, with the pandemic there. They had all kinds of uh, ideas and requests and things like this, and they weren't listened to in, in, in various ways. So I think that instead of uh, trying to cook up schemes that are coming from the bureaucrats and the politicians, that we need to uh, go to the, the, the healthcare, the, the on-the-ground healthcare staff themselves and work up from there in terms of uh, what is needed and, and so on. Because what's, well, I believe what's happening right now is that um, the... Uh, you know the private, the big private companies, the big conglomerates, and all this. You know, like they're uh, sort of moving around in troubled waters, right? You know, looking to you know, when they see all this fighting taking place between the federal and uh, provincial governments, and uh, you know, to me, that just uh, that's not a solution. Rather, go to go to the the people who are actually on the ground. And uh, involve them in in various ways and various mechanisms uh, to, to to get to find some solutions at work. Right, um, Herb. Do you think that this is going? I mean, this point about private corporations going off in troubled waters. I got a, actually an interesting story about that, but I want to hear from you. Um, do we have a way forward here? I mean, is there a Canada? Should there be some Canada wide? Guidance on this, as the federal government was saying, like some some metrics that they can provide to the to the feds for you know in exchange for the cash, or should we just be continuing to allow provinces to kind of make it up as they go along and do each individual? Well, I think this this whole idea that, that uh, private corporations are somehow going to you know solve all our problems is um, 
uh, a really uh, a crazy idea. I mean, we, we live next to the what is arguably the the world's most uh, uh, well wealthiest country, the United States. And you look at the uh, healthcare system down there, and it's it's a mess. And it's uh, based on free enterprise. Uh, it's based on uh, private corporations, and uh, they pay twice as much uh, per capita for healthcare. Uh, than we do, and uh, 20% of the people living there don't have health insurance, and they have worse, worse uh, medical outcomes. Uh, if you look at in terms of life expectancy, in terms of uh, infant mortality, in terms of, uh, uh, well, a, a number of metrics anyway. So uh, I think we should actually start um, uh Looking with without a jaundiced eye at our own system, everyone loves to complain. Everyone, you know, but but really the outcomes are are pretty good, and um, you know there's there's a reason why Canada is actually becoming a preferred uh, immigration uh, destination for immigrants of all all over from all over the world, and one of them is our healthcare system. So, you know, one one thing that. Uh, uh, premiers love to do is take on the federal government. It uh, gives them a sense of purpose. But uh, in the last year, we found that both uh, British Columbia and uh, Ontario have actually not spent all the money that they've they've, they've actually had budget surpluses. And um, um, so it, it makes uh, in Ontario, I think they actually had uh, ear, uh, funds earmarked for healthcare that were, were not spent. So you know that really kind of hollows out the uh, the arguments against uh, this uh, supposedly underfunding, and uh, you know I think we it's it's always a messy business healthcare, but um, generally we actually have pretty good outcomes, and there's always room for improvement. But um, let's call a spade a spade, and we've actually got a pretty good system. It's interesting uh, the this issue with corporate actors in the space isn't just about them kind of setting up businesses that will take over from the the, the public service right I, I have a friend whose whose partner recently completed a program in to become a respiratory therapist right and she did one of her practicums here in Prince George at the what is supposed to be a teaching hospital the the difference between Vancouver and here was that she was essentially on her own as a student running six beds when the requirement is supposed to be two uh, and having no mentoring, right? The rea- And then they couldn't hire her afterwards, even though they brought her on as a student, they couldn't hire her afterwards because they didn't have... The budget. No, they didn't have the oversight. The only people that they're hiring in that role at this hospital already have the experience necessary to run increased beds on their own. The other issue, of course, is that there's no funding to attract talent here. There's no, the, the apparently the government uh, system, and I, I believe this, uh, doesn't allow for relocation bonuses, etc., right? Whereas over in Alberta, they're doing that for all sorts of levels of, of uh, people working in the healthcare system. So instead, she's going to work for a private company that provides in-home respiratory care, right? So there's this, like, the the fact, and it may be by design, we know that, you know, the kind of shock doctrine uh, idea of neoliberal hollow, hollowing out of public services leads to the the private sector being able to come in and provide those services. 
but I mean, like, what are we doing? How do we how do we allow talent who has decided that they're making their life here in Prince George to like not be part of the public system? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's policies. It's also like you know relocation treaty. Maybe we need to return to local hospital boards. Isn't there a local hospital board? Mm, yeah, but I think there might be, but they don't have any teeth at all. Right. I think. Yeah. I mean, I heard, um, I don't know, no, I shouldn't repeat that because I don't know for sure if it's true, but uh, <laughs> I think, like, we've really got to look at, I, I, I really am a believer in more local make, local decision making because when you are local, you have to, you meet these people in the grocery store and when you're shopping and you are accountable to the public. Um, and I think we need more of that. Uh, we need less of a patriarchal attitude from our federal government towards this. And if we want to look at how well the federal government runs health care, we just need to look at First Nations health. Hmm. It's dismal. Yeah. It's worse, awful. worse than than uh, the rest of the health care system. Anyone else have some uh, closing comments on how to fix health care once again? Well, I think we ought to look at, uh, you know, how we got here. Obviously, we got here because of, you know, the different uh, things that we brought in and tried. Uh, you know, I, I, you can't argue and, and get into all of this stuff. Like, Prince George was set up as a, as a teaching hospital because Vancouver doctors refused to teach that many students anymore. They said, we're not doing this anymore. And so they set up Kelowna, Kamloops, I think Nanaimo, and Prince George. So it's a teaching hospital. First year is at UBC. Then you have two or three years here. Then you might end up in Toronto for your last two years. So it was never was set up to be a long-term sort of thing. It was to take the pressure off Vancouver. But we never recognized that. We went around and say, oh, we had 5,000 people at a meeting and we got a teaching hospital here. Well, no, you don't. Like I you know, said, if train them in the north, they'll stay in the north. Does anybody ever give you a figure how many stayed? I never heard it. That's a really good question. We got to take a couple breaks here, and we'll be back after these messages. I got one. The Beatles formed in Liverpool in 1960 and consisted of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. They are widely considered to be one of the most influential bands of all time. The band's innovative songwriting and musicianship, as well as their charismatic personalities and sense of style, helped to shape the popular culture of the 1960s and continue to influence music today. Join us on Thursdays at 6pm for Apple Scruffs, only on 93.1. Ron's Hole in the Wall is now open six days a week in the Q3 Creative Business Hub. Stop by and check out his great assortment of books, magazines, DVDs, and collectibles. Tuesday through Friday between 10 and 2. Ron's Hole in the Wall is also open during the Q3 Community Market, Saturday from 8.30 to 2. Drop in regularly as always something different in store. Ron's Hole in the Wall now open Tuesday through Saturday in the Q3 Creative Business Hub, downtown at the corner of Quebec and 3rd. Update your look with exciting new free frames from Savers Optical. Purchase a set of lenses and get the frames for free. With over 1,000 frames to choose from, you'll find the perfect pair. Savers Optical, celebrating their 20th anniversary. Stop by for a visit at 1537 3rd Avenue downtown or call 250-563-5811. Your new look awaits at Savers Optical. Their 20th anniversary sale is on now. Forecast from Environment Canada, mainly cloudy today with a 30% chance of showers. Winds from the south at 30, gusts into 50, a high of 4. Partly cloudy tonight, winds from the south at 20, a low of minus 2 with a windshield of minus 8. For Saturday, flurries, winds from the southwest at 30, gusts into 50, and a high of 1. 
keeping you up to date on current news and events in and around Prince George. This is After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. We're back. Uh, Peter, you're going to have the final say on uh, on this health care question. Well, I think uh, a really important thing to think about is uh, the whole question, like, it's often presented as if healthcare is some kind of drain on the system, that it's a cost, right, and that, uh, uh, you know, it's an endless cost and so on. But that's far from the, the case. Healthcare, uh, the, the, the product of healthcare are healthy, is a healthy population, a healthy workforce. Uh, healthcare workers add a huge amount of value to the economy uh, through their work, you know, to keep people healthy. And uh, I think that concept, you know, of uh, and we saw that in the pandemic, how absolutely essential they they were, and and how they put their hearts and souls into the whole thing. So I, I think uh, recognizing that uh, that that healthcare healthcare workers actually create value and added value and all that is very important. And I think it's connected to the idea that we need to, we need to view healthcare as a right, more as a right rather than some kind of. Uh, uh, add-on or, or whatever, right? Uh, and uh, uh, for me, th- those are t- uh, two important points. Thanks, Peter. Uh, we did want to move on to uh, there's more bad news for Prince George's economy. The projected job growth for the, I think it's called the Caribou Economic Region, is the lowest in B.C. over the next 10 years. 0.2%. And uh, 93% of that is actually going to be replacing people who are retiring 93 percent is just replacing people who are retiring and that like that that's 93 percent of a 0.2 percent job growth so so less than like less than 10 percent of this little tiny bit of less than 0.02 percent of job growth in the next 10 years is new jobs in this region it's so depressing like what are we supposed to do here? And you know, with the the continuing shrinking of the of the forestry economy, although there are lots of folks who are claiming that, for instance, mining is going to save us, that's another fickle industry, right? Your your copper goes down, like what happened in Princeton. Your copper goes down. All of a sudden, you just close the mine, lay everybody off. I. Like, what's the outlook here, Trudy? You know, that's really interesting. I. Shortly after the Canfor uh, Canfor announced their layoffs, uh, one longtime resident, um, respected in the community, said to me, "You know what? What people forget is how resilient we are." And I know you just quoted those statistics, which are very dismal. But she said, "You know what? People are resilient." And she said, "We've lived through like I think they had moved here in the fifties or something or or sixties." And she said, "Things go up, things go down. Prince George people just keep ticking. So that is our greatest asset." Right? I mean, I really believe that. We just take our lumps? No, no. People. People is our greatest assets. And and people f- figure things out because of their for their own self-interest, right? So, I mean, I think one... The, the, the thing with mining and the reason I think that it won't go down in the next 50 years probably is because of electrification. And until we... Because, I mean, we don't even have anything near enough minerals for the electrification that everybody wants to do so i think that's that's going to be very stable um and i think the the opportunities that we have through mining through energy with either natural gas or hydro those are all things that are huge i mean the world runs on energy i think um i think we we need maybe 
because Prince George has been down for so long, and, and, this, and not down, like we've ticked along, right? Like there's we, like we we don't have a we don't really have a thriving, um, vibrant mindset. I think, and it's partly why I ran for council because I really wanted that for that future for our kids. I watched Prince George survive and try to thrive, but we just never quite got there. So, I mean, if I can say in four years that we're doing a little bit better on that, then I will consider my time very successful. I wonder if this is actually about thinking about how we really measure our prosperity. Peter, I know you've got something to say about this. Uh, Yeah, well, in terms of measuring our prosperity, uh, Prince George... The, the Prince George region, has, has, like as Trudy was talking about here, there's uh, there's always been a, a huge potentiality here, you know, in terms of uh, like looking at Prince George itself, it's a, the hub of a vast region, a service center, you know, with uh, and there's all kinds of resources of forestry, metals, minerals, energy, oil and gas. And we have infrastructure here. We have rail, road, air, gas pipelines, energy, government services, court services, northern health. Education, CNC, and UNBC, and there's sports, recreation, infrastructure, and forestry manufacturing, and so on. Right, so there's a lot of the things here, right? But uh, part of the problem is the whole question, like of uh, what are some of the core industries are uh, and their continuation. And support those services, yeah, exactly, right. And uh, you know, like we do have a situation where the uh, the wood industry is uh, in in a kind of a decline. It's not going to go away, but it's in a kind of decline. Uh, so, you know, for me, one of the most important things is, is that uh, looking at the um, industries that have been here, like forestry, for example, forestry has created huge value for this province, right? And in, in the term of uh, in terms of revenue for the corporations and revenue for government, and uh, you know, you, you look at some of these small communities like Houston and Chetwind and all this. And they, they just uh, contributed a, a tremendous amount of added value. But it's not recognized in terms of the mechanisms so that, uh, uh, you know, some of that value stays back in the communities. You know, whether, and uh, that, uh, that applies to Prince George as well, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the that, that revenue, uh, uh, and, and there's, um, various municipalities in the region there that are actually asking for more, re- more revenue sharing because, uh, all this money is, is being squeezed out, and it goes to the corporate head, headquarters and goes to the government and all this. But uh, the the communities mm-hmm. are, uh, are are like squeezed lemons, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, we we need um, new mechanisms in which some of that revenue can be put can be poured back into the the communities to diversify the economies and and so on, rather than and and getting away from this whole idea that we're some somehow poor country cousins, right, like, like who are, uh, you know, sort of uh, begging the provincial government or whatever. That's not the case. There's a huge amount of value that is created out of this uh, region, the small towns as well as bigger towns like Prince George, and uh, that has to be recognized. Herb, what do you have to say? <clears throat> yeah, I think there's tremendous opportunity here that uh, is, is untapped. Uh, the forestry uh, basically is just being extractive up to this point. Uh, we have to start uh, investing in it. We have to start uh, doing some advanced silviculture techniques, such as they use in Sweden. We could double the um, the fiber production per uh, per hectare that uh, we currently uh, uh, 
that we currently have. So I think there's there's all sorts of opportunities. Uh, we have to actually get together and, uh, like Peter was saying, uh, work as communities and uh, assert our rights. So in in within the next couple of years, there's eight billion dollars of um, uh, softwood lumber tax that the Americans have collected, and I think the the government should be uh, negotiating um, directly with the Americans. Uh, on our behalf, and we and the, the people of BC should be receiving a good portion of that money uh, to in, reinvest in our forest industry uh, for the next, uh, well, for, the, for for our future. And uh, you know that's that's uh, that's that's one thing we can do. The other thing is to uh, start reasserting community rights over our forests. Prince George does not have a community forest. It's one of, uh, well, it's the largest uh, forestry town in BC that does not have one. There's over a hundred different communities that do have one. Why does Prince George not have one? It, it's it's just uh, it's mind boggling. Eric, do you think? I mean, we were talking about this reinvestment thing. There, there's there's new money coming out for from the provincial government for forestry, but is that kind of good money after bad? Is there is there a way to actually diversify instead of just chase down the last bit of fiber that we've got? Well, I don't see how you're going to build the economy on on government money. I mean, they may be able to give you money to get started, but you know, you look around Prince George, you up down Third George, and make a list of all the people in the last twenty years that invested money there. You're kind of hard pressed to find it. You see a lot of windows that are boarded up, and they got a newspaper in there or whatever. We did get a new pizza joint here up on Fifth Avenue here. It opened up a couple of weeks ago. The Domino's? Yeah, so things are looking and up. And three more McDonald's? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the thing is, when you come down to the to the nitty-gritty, you know, I'll give you an example. The mine, the mine in, uh, in Daco, Imperial Metals, shut down, I think, 10 or 12 years ago. But the company that owns it never shut down the one that was in uh, Montana or Idaho. They carried on down there, and they've been working every day since. Those are the types of things that's happened when you have uh, multinationals running companies. They can either run in Australia or run in Prince George, whatever suits their fancy. The paper mill in Mackenzie was shut down by Abitibi from Quebec, and it just was a single line item. Okay, this one's got to go because it doesn't fit in with our future plan. So we've got nobody. We've got potash, sulfur, coal, uh, wheat. Uh, containers, all the rest of it, they just whistle through this town and go to Prince Rupert and go somewhere else. Unless you can figure out how to stop that, it's not going to change. All right, we'll take a short break. We'll be back after these messages. The Prince George RCMP is requesting your help in locating 35-year-old Lucas Kenneth Richard Turner, wanted for two counts of theft under $5,000 and failing to comply with a probation order. Turner is described as an indigenous male, 5'9", 141 pounds, with black hair, brown eyes, and multiple tattoos, including two tears near his right eye. He's considered violent and should not be approached. If you know the whereabouts of Lucas Turner, please call the RCMP at 250-561-3300. Life Before the Pulp Mills from your Council of Seniors is a unique look at the early years of Prince George. The Goat Island Swimming Hall and Pier, the Old Army Hospital, and Making Do During World War II. It's a look back using the words of past Prince George residents, such as the Peckhams, Ollingers, Kirchkees, and others. Our city in the 40s, 50s, and early 60s comes alive for just $20. Life Before the Pulp Mills, available from your Council of Seniors office at 7th and Victoria. 
The Prince George Potter's Guild is taking registration for upcoming classes. Take the Beginner Wheel Level 1 course Tuesdays from March 14th to April 18th with six evenings of instruction followed by one month of studio time. Clay and use of tools as well as glazing and firing during classes is also included. Registration and full details on this introductory course are available through the Potter's Guild link under programs at studio2880.com. The Beginner Wheel Level 1 course, Tuesdays from March 14th to 18th from the Prince George Potter's Guild. The downtown branch of your Prince George Public Library is hosting another Games for Grown-Ups evening on Thursday, February 16th. The free drop-in event runs from 6 to 7.30 and gives gaming enthusiasts a chance to challenge other players at board or video games, meet up with former adversaries, and make new friends or enemies. Games for Grown-Ups runs every second Thursday at the downtown library from 6 to 7.30. Come on down and let the games begin. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. There might be a bright spot uh, in in something here. Uh, <laughs> we're seeing an interesting change from the, the city's approach to the homelessness issue. Um, I, I know I don't know if Trudy can even say a thing about this, but um, whereas what, a year and a half ago they were busy bulldozing tents, um, now they're actually bringing dumpsters into Millennium Park and trying to clean it up, although they say that they don't have much much that they can do. It's a really strange place to be right now. It feels like we're in a holding pattern while they very slowly kind of start to build more social housing and get places for people to go. Um, I don't know if people have, if people think that this is, is this just people, is this just the city being afraid of, of losing another fight? Uh, or is this, you know, a, a, a new kind of human face on, on this issue? Peter? Uh, well, you know, like the, uh, uh, I'm looking at the, uh, uh, you know, the latest press release there, and it sounds very much like as if the city is giving up and solving the, the encampment, uh, issue. And, uh, uh, I, th- I think that there's a couple of uh, things there that uh, the city needs to do. And number one, revisit the the whole idea about uh, assigning a s- certain territory for, for overnight camping. You know, because we need a we need a, a immediate uh, addressing that immediate problem. Uh, and the second thing, of course, is to c- keep uh, the pressure up on the provincial government. In, in terms of uh, prov- you know the housing issue and the health care supports and so on, the, the, the pr- provincial government has this five billion dollars surplus. So I think I think what's really important at this time, rather than the city uh, sort of giving up or resigning itself to the situation there, that they the, the, the keep their eye on the ball on this issue and don't get diverted into other issues. This is an issue that uh, all kinds of people, including the the homeless people as well as the downtown business people. People as well as uh, the residents of Prince George want, want to be solved, and uh, we need we need a, a immediate ad- address of the problem by creating a situation where where the temporary encampment can can continue on until the uh, larger issues the, the larger housing issues are, are are built and addressed. You know, so I think that's I think that's a critical thing at this time. The city's got to keep its eye on the ball. Don't uh, don't resign themselves to the situation. Number one and number two, keep the pressure up on the provincial government to to uh, step up to in the areas where it should do. Do you think that the city uh, actually has a role to play in 
developing solutions, even if it's not city dollars that pay for it, Herb? I think there's a huge opportunity, actually. The, the city uh, could be working with First Nations on this uh, on this issue. Um, you know, I've seen uh, there, there's there's some you know str- there's all sorts of different ideas out there uh, across North America, and and one of them I've seen is uh, a yurts, for instance, um, ba- basically just large large tents that uh, people could uh, bed down in and uh, have a warm place to sleep and uh, be supervised. And this is something where First Nations and the city could could do something temporary. These aren't long-term structures, but it, it sure beats having uh, nylon tents on the street corner. Yeah, and um, you know that's and it would be low cost, and um, and it would develop uh, interactions between the First Nations and the city. Um, I think you know that we can we can do something very low tech, very low cost. That it would be a vast improvement on what we have. And um, and yes, it would be temporary, but you know it would uh, it would be better than what we have, and it's it's a set the set the stage for a way forward here, and I think that in the in the long term we've got to uh, look at low cost housing, uh, you know, like Peter said, from you know there, there's a provincial mandate and um, seems to be anyway, and uh, we've got to look at that uh, for longer term solutions, but let's uh, let's do something to uh, improve a lot of these people. Eric, you think that there are actually opportunities for us to do something like a yurt or, I mean, these small cabin kits that you see that are pretty easy to put together? I don't see why the activators aren't doing something like that. Well, you can do it. There's, uh, it's kind of like these things they have out at the lakes. Yeah, the, the big bunkhouses. Big, well, not bunkhouses. They're big. Uh, oh, yeah. Like they have and people have in their yards for garages and that. Yeah, but if yeah. you do it right, <coughs> I think it should be designed so it can be taken down. And put up, and it should have electricity and heat put in there by the city, and it should be optional whether the people live there or not. Uh, because if you try to force them to it, who knows what you're going to get? But if if I got a choice between sleeping there and yeah. sleeping in a place that's warm and dry and got electricity, I know where I'm going. And then if I got a place to go from there to get an apartment or someplace else to live, and that way people are able to make some choices. And I think that's what they're going to have to do at the end of the day anyway, because it's pretty obvious this is not working. Yeah. This thing here is very small. You know, yeah, look at that and then at the end of the picture of what's going on down there. And then look at Soweto or someplace around the world. This is nothing. If we can't solve this, we may as well pack up and leave town. Yeah. But we've got to spend some money and we've got to do it right. And if it doesn't work, too bad. At least we're trying. I don't know what happened on First Avenue and why we did one building and then leased out the property there for another three years to a private enterprise, and and nobody's talking about what's going on there. How come we don't know what's going on there? Sounds like they're not going to fund it. I don't know, you know. So we need answers to those questions, and we shouldn't have to go to City Hall all the time to get it. They should be giving it to us. I think we might be able to get it right now with Councillor Trudy Clausen. (laughs) So what's, what's, what's preventing what's preventing the city from taking mm-hmm. more entrepreneurial action here? Is there a liability issue? Like, what's the deal? Well, I can't <laughs> I, I can't say a whole lot, uh, but I can say that just what was it a short year ago uh, that uh, the city was still litigating this yeah. in court, right? Yeah. Uh, since then, an election has happened, uh, and an election campaign happened where every single door that I knocked on said 
you know, I gave my little pitch. Hey, I'm for building up our business and natural resource sector. They said, yeah, but what are you going to do about downtown? And so that was that was across the city. That was from north, south, east, west. Every corner of the city, that was the primary concern of business owners. And they were not necessarily, like, very few of them had hardline positions. It was something needs to to be done, right? So, and that election was only in October, and uh, swearing-in was in, in November. And uh, so it really hasn't been that long yet. And remember, incumbents were re-elected. So that's the incumbents who were part of that adversarial approach were reelected. And so there's a bit of a mind shift that has to happen. And I think uh, I'm hopeful that the things that are happening right now will result in some changes. So um, and just listening to you guys here talking about the different ideas, like there's so many good ideas out there. And I think you're absolutely right. It's just a matter of uh Let's begin inching forward at least. All right. We'll take a short break. We'll be back talking about more city council issues. <laughs> Alzheimer's Society of BC's online education offers small group information workshops facilitated to provide opportunities for live discussion. Explore strategies for responding to delusions, hallucinations, and visual mistakes caused by dementia on Tuesday, February 21st. A workshop for caregivers, registration, and more information on this Focus on Behavior presentation is available through alzbc.org. Delusions, hallucinations, and visual mistakes, Tuesday, February 21st first from 10 to 11:30 through alzbc.org. Research into dementia is ongoing in universities all across Canada. Dr. Mariko Sanamoto of UBC is studying the community-related needs of people living with dementia who live alone and how dementia-friendly communities can support their inclusion and well-being. For more information to take part in the study, email mariko.sakamoto at ubc.ca or contact the Alzheimer's Society of BC's Northern Interior Resource Center at 250-564-7533. The dementia experience involves change, loss, and uncertainty. Join the Alzheimer's Society of BC to explore strategies to help you and those around you cope in the face of these changes Wednesday, February 15th at their resource center on Victoria Street. To register or for more information, visit the First Link Dementia Helpline at 1-800-936-6033. Coping with Change, Grief and Loss, Wednesday, February 15th from 10 to noon at 1811 Victoria Street. Forecast from Environment Canada, mainly cloudy today with a 30% chance of showers. Winds from the south at 30, gusting to 50, a high of 4. Partly cloudy tonight, winds from the south at 20, a low of minus 2 with a windshield of minus 8. For Saturday, flurries, winds from the southwest at 30, gusting to 50 and a high of 1. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. We're going to talk about, uh, actually, the City Hall actually stood up to a developer, I was happy to hear, um, that was trying to change their covenant on this, frankly, sweetheart deal uh, on a, a piece of land close to the, the bottom of the hill of the university the 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 deal was i think half a million dollars got them this this piece of land at the corner of i want to say fifth and Tabor, um and they were meant to build student housing there they wanted to change it to seniors housing and they want they actually were were pushed back city hall pushed back however there were a bunch of changes made to that covenant in the intervening time just by city staff. And I guess the question I've got is, 
if you're going to make changes to covenants, I understand that not every single change should go through council. But at what point, what, where is that line? And, and, you know, I mean, was it, was it just that the, that the, uh, Prince George Citizen had kind of found this piece of information and was pushing it publicly that it actually went in front of council. Herb? Uh, there's more problems than that. So the originally the uh, the property was sold to this developer for what seems to be below market prices. So there's uh, the city has to take a, a good hard look at uh, the way it disposes of property. They, it has to be publicly advertised. There has to be uh, an auction. And then you can arrive at, at a fair market price. When you have uh, bureaucrats and uh, uh, and, and uh, land developers entering into a deal, and then everyone claiming afterwards it was a fair market price, well, I don't I don't buy it, and no one else should either. So um, first of all, the the uh, the land went for below market price in return for uh, socially needed housing, uh, which was. Um, uh, then not uh, the, the the company refused to or did not uh, advance as per the original agreement. Uh, the city originally had the right to buy that property back. That was changed, it seems, by city staff without notification of any councillors or or the city council at all. So that's it, it's it's just a, a mess and. Um, uh, it uh, may very well have contravened uh, some basic um, uh, rules uh, that um, uh, are, that, that, are, that are there in the community charter. Uh, there should be an investigation. Uh, I, I really highly doubt there will be one. I think probably we're going to see uh, yet another uh, city employee um, uh, given early retirement and a, and, a, and a package, and we won't even find out how much she was given or if it was a she, uh, but um, you know this is this is something um, you know we've got to we've got to keep uh, keep on this and uh, and really look for uh, transparency and honesty in our city's dealings. Eric, I mean, this was supposed to be for student housing. Student like education is actually where a lot of our growth is probably going to come from. Talking about a job growth in the next ten years, international students coming here. What was the why was this even an option for them to change the covenant? Well, of course, that's what we don't know, and nobody's talking about it right now. But one of the first things I would wonder is, well, if your plan was to build student housing and you're going to invest that much money in it, what changed your mind? Could it be that the student housing they got down by the library there is only half full or something? Could it be that you know there's X number of people that are in apartments and a bunch of other students that are living in uh homes or basement suites or something and some of them four or five of them to a two-bedroom apartment or six whatever doesn't matter and the assumption that they're all going to move into this like i heard one thing like at student uh, housing uh, they want a year lease but most students only want it for eight months and that's a problem mm-hmm. they're not going to pay four months for nothing when they go back to wherever and then come back the next year so there's all kinds of problems there. So we can't make the, the assumptions. So the guy might have said, well, I'm not. it's either if I have to build students' housing, then I'm out of here. And the city could have got the property back, and that would have been the end of it. Sounds like somebody had an idea, well, maybe we can go to seniors' housing or do something else. And then they started to play with it a bit. Negotiating with a mandate. Yeah. 
Trudy, do you have uh, some insider information you can share with us? (laughs) Well, I better not share insider information. Um, But um, this is an item that we got actually quite a lot of emails on. And I just and I want to encourage the public. Honestly, sending emails is really effective um, because it shows people care and it provides moral courage when you know you have to make a tough decision. Um, I think what the public knows, um, like there are certainly changes that we can make in terms of process. And I know I've had a number of uh, people reach out and say, listen, we do really need to have a different system. We do need to have public auctions that are open um, for that transparency. And um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't there when this whole... The, when this business deal was arranged um, because it was done quite some time ago. When was it? 2019? Written up? Um, you know, I wonder a little bit about the wisdom of having designated student housing at a 45-minute walk. I think 45 minutes is a bit long. It's uh, on the bus line, I mean. It is on the bus line. Um, so maybe that's... People aren't walking to UNBC, I tell you. They're not, hey? Okay. All right. Um, <laughs> unless it's on the, on the site, right? So... Yeah, I think there's definitely like this this what has happened here and the fact that council voted it down, I think that's going to be a signal that okay, we we do need to look at th- doing things differently. Um so hopefully that's what happens because um I mean we we added the word transparency to our strategic plan. So let's hope that we get some of that. Okay. Peter, you got the last word on this. Uh well, just to reiterate what Trudy's saying there, the the whole question of transparency. You know, it's a, it's a, a concept that uh, should be aimed for, but you need you need processes and mechanisms to make sure that it ha- that happens, right? And so I uh, I would look forward to seeing uh, council's uh, ideas in terms of what concretely can be done to so that this kind of situation doesn't happen, or like where people feel that they've been left out in the dark and that some monkey business has gone on and so on. Eric, one more thing. Yeah, I was just going to say the. Uh you know the the sale of property and and that type of situation it's all done in closed meetings so you're not going to get any transparency at a closed meeting so you better change the closed meeting rules interesting her final thought uh, just in terms of value that's uh, that's 14 acres so roughly uh, could be up to 82 uh, building lots uh, uh, that uh, building lots in that area go for $150,000 each. So you're looking at a potential uh, value of, uh, what, $12 million bucks. Wow. If the city decided to actually put in services and roads, um, you know, that would be a huge uh, uh, boost to the local economy. Um, you know, the, the city's, city's got to look at these uh, as, as real potential uh, revenue sources. All right, we got a few messages, and we'll be back after this. The end of the week is time for well-earned relaxation and play. Join Two Rivers Gallery on Friday, February 17th for Art Disco. Reflect and draw the things you love and cherish. Connect your emotions with objects through mixed media. For the artistically inclined, 19 and older, inner self-portraits. The next Art Disco, Friday, February 17th at 7. Registration for Friday Art Disco is available through the adult programs link at tworiversgallery.ca and at Two Rivers Gallery, where creativity flows in Canada. Canada Games Plaza.
The Community Arts Council is seeking volunteers for the 2023 BC Gourmet Arts Festival. Set for June 9th to 11th at CN Center, the festival features culinary and visual arts, vendors, food events, live music, and more. Volunteers will assist with the ticket booth, selling 50-50 tickets, vendor hospitality support, and other fun activities. Visit the Volunteer With Us link on the website bcgourmet.ca for more information or to sign up as a volunteer. You can also sign up through the listings page at volunteerpg.com. We all need to have difficult conversations at times, especially as a manager. If you want to better handle difficult conversations and achieve positive outcomes, you'll appreciate management skills for supervisors from CNC Continuing Education. Learn common factors in miscommunication, plus all five conflict handling styles and when to use them. Management skills for supervisors runs from 830 to 4, February 21st through 24th. Registration and full details are available through Continuing Education at CNC. Registration deadline is Monday. Origins Kitchen at the Exploration Place invites you to celebrate Valentine's Day after the fact. Bring a date to enjoy a full evening of fun and food on February 17th and 19th. Chef Jenny Arnett will lead couples through preparing ingredients for a grazing board while giving a little context, history, and some fun facts about each. Couples will then enjoy their board at the Gaia Gallery along with cocktails and a homemade dessert. Book your time in advance by contacting the Exploration Place. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. we got an interesting story. Uh, Brenda Lucky, uh, commissioner of the RCMP, has admitted that she sent uh, uniformed RCMP officers to, quote, disrupt Chinese police stations. I thought that was a really interesting kind of uh, blunt force, old-time, like, reminds me of, you know, something from the Al Capone days. We're going to send some... Some uniform police officers to go in here, but the—I mean—the question I've got is what what's happening? They are calling these Chinese police stations. They're saying that their offices in the back of of uh, commercial businesses. Eric, what's happening here? Are, I mean, are we actually—is this, is this a red scare issue? I don't really know what it is. I I know that that type of thing goes on all over the world, as far as I know. You know, whether it's the Uyghurs or whatever they call them. Whether it's in, uh, uh, I forget the name of that country in China where they're always having problems, but Taiwan. Hmm? Oh, the Uyghurs. Yeah, whatever. Uh, but yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I could see it. Why wouldn't you do that? I mean, the Chinese uh, populations, like in Vancouver, and that they're all in one spot. They're kind of a uh, society within a society, and they do their own thing. And, and so if we're not policing them properly, are they actually policing themselves? Is there a connection to the communist Chinese? I don't know, probably both, you know. And uh, just the, the the way they went in there is kind of weird, like you say. Like, you know, why don't you just send the cops in on a normal basis and patrol the, uh, the area? I don't know. Trudy? <laughs> well, you know, as I'm thinking about this, and it's like, okay, I thought the role, like, because Eric was saying, you know, this happens all over the world, and it's like, well, I thought we had embassies for that and consulates that would serve our residents, and don't we have a Chinese consulate? So what is the point of having Chinese police stations? I mean, the question, I guess, is what is the role that other states play in, in, in you know, our own internal politics? And it sounds like the way that they're characterizing this that these there are police forces operating in Canada to police Chinese nationals. Peter, I know you've got a kind of skeptical uh, run on this, so go ahead. 
Uh, yeah, like I think we really have to be careful in today's world about uh, just accepting what's pushed by media and, and big-time politicians in terms of what's going on. We're seeing right now, like the in the United States here, that uh, the, the whole Russia Gate thing is falling apart. Right? They're finding out that, uh, uh, like, I'm not a supporter of Trump and all this, but that uh, a large amount of uh, the information that went into that Russia Gate thing was was fraudulent and pushed the whole idea that Russia had somehow. Uh, tipped the election in favor of, of, of Trump. And so now we have a situation where the U.S. has designated China as uh, the sort of the, the it target, right? You know, before it was Russia, and bef- before that it was um, Muslim countries, uh, Iraq or whatever. And so now we have this buildup, and we're going to see more and more of it, in my opinion. There, there, there's more and more the, the anti-China kind of thing there, because what's happening is that the world is moving from a, a unipolar world dominated by the U.S. to a multipolar world. Where, you've, where you have other countries uh, such as India, Brazil, Russia, whatever, who are saying well, we don't want to be under the thumb of one particular uh, country, one, one superpower. We want a multipolar world. So what you're seeing is uh, all this kind of stuff, and it, it's connected to, to the, um, you know, the Chinese balloon thing, b- oh, balloon, yeah. balloon thing. You know, which uh, like a weather balloon, as if they don't have satellites for that. Come on, which, which, which was which was very interesting because right from the very beginning, the politicians and the media they called it a spy balloon, and the fact of the matter is, in the world, there's there's up over a million weather balloons put up by various countries. Canada, for example, when you actually look historically, has been responsible for having stray balloons go over to Europe that had to be that they tried to shoot down. Right? Hilarious. And and so. You have this kind of hysteria that's being created, but it's big power politics. And I really think that we shouldn't get dragged into it because there's a danger of war. Herb, do you think that, do you agree with Peter? Do you think that this is just RCMP kind of contributing to that lovely uh, propaganda push? No, I, I just uh, point out that uh, just two weeks ago, uh, top FBI counterintelligence uh, unit, Charles McGonagall, who had been in- investigating the um, uh, Russian influence on Trump was arrested for selling his um, services to uh, to the Russians. So uh, basically, it looks like uh, uh, FBI has been severely compromised by the Russians, and uh, uh, you know we can't be uh, babes in the wood about this. There's um, foreign influence uh, throughout uh, North America, and uh, it's a good thing we have something like the RSMP who can just go and walk in and uh, reassert some Canadian. Uh, uh, Canadian policy, Canadian um, authority. I just think it's hilarious. Like, if this is actually happening, if they have evidence that there are, like, basically an intimidation campaign of people who, whether they're Canadian citizens or not, are living in Canada by an outside state actor, what, they're just going in and, like, doing a show of force in uniforms? Like, that's how they're going to deal with it? Peter? Uh, well, they just draw attention to back in 2010, 2011. Same kind of thing happened where the CSIS uh, director, former director came out and talked about how uh, China was uh, compromising t- top uh, provincial government officials and all this, right? And there was a parliamentary committee that reviewed this that severely criticized him for being unprofessional and creating this uh, this uh, anti-China uh, sort of atmosphere at that time. And, and uh, you had... Um, uh, even the even premier, the premier of British Columbia, 
denounced this whole thing, right? You know, in terms of, and so then that, that that blew away, right? So now this other one has come up now, like that. The, there's uh, they create the impression that somehow uh, that the China is t- taking over the the country and all this kind of stuff. But I think you really have to look at the fact that there's a big power politics here. I mean, going on. Yes, of course, and we're trying to, I guess, hold our line with the with our closest allies, right? I mean, that's and the change between 2010 and now is that, as you said, that unipolar world is starting to really show the show the cracks. It's funny. I heard uh, the Commerce Secretary of the United States today on claiming that China doesn't compete fairly in the global economy, and I'm thinking. Oh, you're the United States. Come on. Like, what are you talking about? Anyway, that's our show today, and uh, I hope everyone has a great weekend. Thanks. After 9 is a weekday presentation of CFISFM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Eric Allen, Kylie Lewis-Holt, Trudy Clausen, and Rez Krebs. Executive producer is Reg Fair, with technical assistance from Stephen Smith. Theme music is by The Ebbs. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. You're listening to 93.1 CFISFM, Prince George, proudly partnered with local community groups like the Railway and Forestry Museum on River Road next to Cottonwood Island Park.